The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody. We have a couple of guests. Maybe some of you were able to join in uh, yesterday for the programs, but Nakaway, who's with Shelley Graff, our associate director, is in the um, Insight Meditation Center for your teacher training program, right in the middle, right? And Angela, and I haven't met you before. You're from New York Insight. Yeah. And someone who did the Community Dharma Leader program with Alex and Jean, two of our teachers here. And uh, see, was there anybody else from Minnesota? Oh, yeah, Constance, yeah. And I always in it, too, yeah. <laughs> so lots of Minnesota folks. And... Uh, there's a couple copies, maybe they're gone already, of Still in the City that that group of the CDL people, there must have been maybe 80 in your group, um, wrote that book. All people who, 24 wrote chapters. I hadn't heard of it, the book, until I knew you were coming. So I'll have to take a look. So uh, uh, Shelley, as you know, taught last week. And as we move through the eight-week course on impermanence, You know, we're just, a lot of times when we get introduced to these different Buddhist themes or concepts, it always just built in, you know, this sort of achievement part of our conditioning, like we want to get it. And it always then sort of leans toward getting it conceptually. And it's good. It's good to sort of get it as a concept. And impermanence, of course, is relatively easy to get as a concept as opposed to the impersonal nature. It makes sense. Spring becomes summer, summer becomes fall, fall becomes winter. I used to be 40, then I used to be in my 50s, now I'm in my <laughs> 60s. <laughs> so there are a lot of obvious you know, things we can point to. But uh, the real practice is to take it up as an ongoing theme and really notice. And tonight's theme is to really notice like when we bring that kind of integrity, that kind of curiosity about impermanence and really directing the attention to experiencing. I don't know how many of you read that chapter that we scanned in from Joko Beck's book. Did you talk about that last week, experience versus experiencing? Well, hopefully some of you read that, but it's just a simple point that Joko Back, this wonderful Zen teacher, was making where we talk, you know, casually to our friends, oh yeah, I had this experience. We're always turning our life because our concepts, the idea or the story about what happened to me earlier today or last week, it kind of exists as a memory, as a story. It has a kind of static, the story is static. I'm a male. You know, that, that's sort of static. But maleness, whatever that might mean, it isn't a thing, right? It's a dance, it's a movement, whatever that might that word might point to. I'm a citizen of the United States of America. You know, it can sort of feel like something, but what does that mean? Or I this is Minnesota. So we want to, with the concept of impermanence, we want to really not get with the idea, okay, there's impermanence, I got it. I know that about the Buddhist teaching, everything is impermanent. But it's really a teacher for us, and we should have some humility that it's not easy. I mean, even something that some of us have been doing for decades you know, using the breath as an anchor. It's very easy and it even can be skillful depending on our motivation for doing breath meditation to be aware as we're breathing in of the idea of breath and to be aware as breath is going out of the idea of breath. Because that's how we can use breath more as a concentration object because the idea of breath is more constant, 
than the experiencing of breath. And with concentration practice, we're retreating, right? We're withdrawing the mind's attention from the sense gates, from dhamma, in a sense, or from the grosser aspect of dhamma, sounds and sights and sensations and thoughts about all that. Right? We're withdrawing. So we use the concept breath, which has some stability. I'm breathing in. Breath is going out, or whatever it might be. And when I'm really holding the attention there with that idea, breath is coming in, breath is going out, then the mind retreats. It's not able, not aware of anything else. And it can experience the bliss of that seclusion. But more often here, you know, for our daily life practice at least, we're doing more of a wisdom-oriented practice where we're interested in the sensations of breathing in and the sensations of breathing out. We may use the concept of breath or in-breath, out-breath in the in, you know, first minutes. But then if we're having a, you know, a good set, then we're really, there's enough continuity of present moment awareness and we're really interested, the mind is interested in the flow. And you might find as the whole heart, mind, body settles down that the breath doesn't, isn't much of anything, the sensations of breath. And that's why it's such a wonderful wisdom object because the breath will reveal the underlying nature of dhamma, phenomena, that it's changing, it's a flow a process of change, and because of that, not satisfying for the sort of ordinary formation of self that wants ground, the breath turns out to be pretty frustrating to the degree the mind wants to grasp the object of meditation. Breath as sensation turns out to be a little too slippery. But it makes the mind really subtle and really interested. Right? And it, the mind sort of begins to relate to the breath as a teacher, as opposed to relating to the breath as a vehicle to get me someplace nice. And that's really the difference between using it as a concentration object and using it as a wisdom object. And both are good. It's not like one's better than the other, as long as we know what we're doing and understand the motivation for what we're doing. Are we going using the breath as a concentration object because we don't like life? (laughs) We don't like how ephemeral it is, ungrounded it is, how open it is. And we're using the breath over and again to retreat, to disconnect from more ordinary level of reality, which is ungrounded and open and not fixed, which is not very satisfying for the ego or for the sort of sense of me that, I mean, what goes right with the sense of me wanting ground, wanting safety? But if our underlying reality of the mind and body is this change, this natural flow, natural process, then that kind of fixed ground, permanent ground, won't be found here. And it's exactly that tension that is our teacher. Right? Buddha knowing Dhamma. These are our refuges. The sort of three refuges of Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, they're meant to be like a refuge in a path of practice. So we're training like there's nothing more safe then opening to what the heart initially does not want to open to, does not feel comfortable with, and letting it teach the heart. And then we notice, Sangha, we notice that our response in life is more beautiful and nimble and skillful, fearless. So we trust it more and more. It's like our life works better when more and more it's Buddha knowing Dhamma. Buddha is being open, 
Dhamma is the way that it is. And the way that it is, we often talk about, the Buddha talks about as the three characteristics, which aren't three different things. They're really three angles on the way it is, on Dhamma. So when we look at the way it is, any moment will do, any moment of our life, looking at the activity of the mind, activity of the body, it doesn't really matter what we open to. If we open in a particular way, we'll notice the changing nature. I think Thich Nhat Hanh said, is if we're opening it, opening to the moment in terms of the continuum of time, then we see impermanence. If we're opening to the present moment in the term of space, we see not self. If we open to the moment in terms of me, we see it's unsatisfying. Not, not possible to get, to get what I want. So that in this way, the teacher of Dhamma, Buddha knowing Dhamma, it teaches the heart to let go of these self-agendas. And so the heart, the activity of this life becomes more generous and more compassionate and more fearless because self-centered agendas don't make sense when the mind is in alignment with the underlying reality. It only makes sense to be a jerk, to be selfish, to be mean, to have ill will. It only makes sense to do that when the mind is misunderstanding or misperceiving. So the, the way to become a more skillful, loving wise human being isn't to try to be more skillful, wise, and loving. It's to align with nature. That's really the brilliance of what the Buddha came to understand from observing his own life. Instead of trying to be a saint, we let this process of Buddha knowing Dhamma have its effect, which is Sangha. Right. Sangha doesn't mean belonging to the common ground spiritual community or being a student of the Buddha. Sangha means more and more our <clears throat> response to any moment is really coming out of that intimacy as opposed to coming out of a personal agenda or a personal self-centered strategy. Because when... Even if we're doing really great work in the world, but if it's coming out of a self-centered fear, self-centered greed, then or self-centered rage, then <clears throat> although there may be some positive effects because of our actions, what we do, what we say, but we're also planting the seed of that suffering because self-centeredness doesn't work because it doesn't align with the nature. It's presuming something is there that never was there. That there's a self that needs solid ground. And the suffering isn't, be isn't because it's impermanent. The suffering is because there's this imagined somebody who needs solidity or permanence. And then the very natural, appropriate uh, arising when there's this pres presumed somebody who needs solid ground is tension or contraction or suffering. And all of that arising, only one problem, like in the, the way the Buddha came to understand his own experience as a human being, in a way, there's only one bad thing, right? And that is the absence of intimacy, the absence of Buddha knowing Dhamma. That's the only problem, in the, you could say, in the universe, just to be provocative. Because it seems like there are a lot of problems. You know, when you read the newspaper, pay attention to the world, it seems like there's a lot of suffering and a lot of it being unique, like the causes for the suffering is sort of uniquely this or uniquely that. And how could it be that human beings, 
coming into alignment with their lives could resolve suffering. But the Buddha doesn't say that wisdom resolves birth and death or doesn't even resolve kind of animal nature of survival and beings acting out their power that they have, the kind of push and pull. And this isn't even just with animate or sentient objects, but even, you know, galaxies evidently crash into other galaxies. And there's a lot of churning and mixing and birth and destruction that's just this whole dance. So that doesn't necessarily go away because a human being is coming into alignment, (coughs) Buddha knowing Dhamma. But what arises is a full participation in that churning, a full participation that doesn't have self-centered greed and aversion. So that's what changes. The world may, who knows, you know, I don't know, but the world may look a lot like it looks now. You know, if we could interview the Buddha or somebody with a deep, deep awakening, you know, how does the world appear to you? They might describe it in much the same terms or way that we would describe it, but their participation in the world might be very light and free. And they may not be afraid of having their heart broken over and over again and their heart delighted by the goodness and the beauty over and over again. They might not have a problem with the brokenness and the, the delighting that comes their way. This is from uh, Sharon Salzberg's book. Anybody hear her interview with Carrie Miller on Minnesota Public Radio a couple of weeks ago? It was beautiful. Yeah, you can get it. They, you know, have it online. I think, I think it might have been the fifteenth of July. I just sent it to Kamala. I was telling Kamala about it and was teaching with her. And in her book, wonderful book on loving kindness, she wrote. Equanimity is spacious stillness of the mind, a radiant calm that always, that allows us to be present fully with all the changing experience that constitute our world and our lives. And you might have noticed this in our sit tonight, you know, how, because I was mentioning, you know, I was inviting this teaching, I think I mentioned in the guided sit, So a lot of you know this already, but the Buddha had his awakening under the Bodhi tree, spent several weeks there under the Bodhi tree, just probably, I'm guessing, integrating what had happened, clarifying how things had changed for him, given what his mind had come to understand. And then figuring out, like, well, maybe I'll try to, maybe I'll be able to share this in a way that will be useful for other people decided to go find his old friends that he'd been practicing with, but they had left the Buddha because they were doing pretty extreme ascetic practices. And the Buddha saw that, eventually saw that as a dead end, not really leading to awakening, like fasting to the nth degree. doesn't really lead to awakening. It leads to the body getting sick and weak. And so he gave it up. And they thought he had gone weak, and they went off on their own way. Shortly after that, the Buddha had his deep awakening. And then, out of compassion and knowing that these were pretty sincere folks and had some wisdom already, he thought he'd track them down and share. And so the first talk, when he, it took several weeks to find them, but uh, the first talk uh, was the Four Noble Truths talk in the middle way. right? And one of the five had uh, what's called stream entry, like just beginning to get a little glimpse of the freedom the Buddha had come to fully realize. And then a few days later, he gave the talk that I was sort of using for the guided meditation, the talk on the uh, 
not self. It's sometimes, see how, um, yeah, the discourse on the not self characteristic. Right? And the Buddha is basically doing what, walking these five folks through what we walk through in the guided meditation tonight, looking at body. Is it constant or not constant? And just a, not trying to conclude, but really look, using the question to look. And then with the four aspects of the mind, perception, and the feeling tone, mental formations, consciousness, constant or not constant. And then if when it comes into view that, in fact, anything in the present moment of the mind or body, which is the whole totality, right? There isn't anything other than these six sense gates, five physical senses, that's the body, and the activity of the mind, which the Buddha, just to make it easier for us, breaks down because the mind is subtle. So it's helpful to think of the mind, the activity of the mind, as the activity of perceiving and the activity of having feeling tone being known. And all the formations, all the motivations and intentions and content that arises because of sense experience, that's mental formation, sankara, and then consciousness. Right? So these are also you know, flows or the movement of mental activity. Constant or not constant? If it's, if it's truly not constant, the body, activity of the mind, truly not constant, truly a changing process, could that ever be satisfying? Could it ever provide something that could be me or mine? Right? And then the last reflection is just that. Is it really helpful to consider it me or mine, to consider itself, if it is inconstant and unsatisfying, not satisfying? And then in that discourse, Then the Buddha says, Therefore, practitioners, any material form whatsoever, whether past, future, or present, in oneself, external, coarse, or fine, inferior or superior, far or near, should all be regarded as it actually is, by right understanding thus. This is not mine. This is not what I am. This is not myself. Any feeling, any perception, any formation, any consciousness whatsoever, past, future, or present, in oneself or external, coarse or fine, inferior or superior, far or near, should all be regarded as it actually is by right understanding thus. This is not mine. This is not what I am. This is not myself. Seeing thus, practitioners, a wise, noble student becomes dispassionate towards the activity of the body, the activity of the mind. Becomes, becoming dispassionate, one's lust fades away, one's greed fades away. With the fading away of greed, one's heart is liberated. When liberated, there comes the knowledge, it is liberated. One understands Birth is exhausted. The holy life has been lived out. What was to be done is done. There's no more of this to come. No more of the wrong understanding. Right? So that is a definition of awakening, someone that is fully awake like a Buddha. What makes a Buddha a Buddha as opposed to a fully awake person is a Buddha does it without anybody else teaching them. But the awakening is the same. But we have the advantage of having these pointing out instructions. So the awakening is described as the tendency to see what is inconstant, to see it as constant. To see what is actually not satisfying, to see it as satisfying. That gets uprooted. We have really nice experiences, but we don't pretend that they're going to be satisfying. I love repeating this line from Susan Piver's article. Many of you have heard it many times, but it's, it's just so nice because we tend 
to project that on our relationships with our friends and our lovers and our cats. And, and we think, this relationship will make me happy. And the line she had in talking with a new friend of hers that she relays in one of her articles, she's a, a Buddhist author, when somebody asked her, like, do you think the relationship can work? This person wants to move in. They're a lot younger than me. Do you think it can work? And she had this brilliant answer that surprised even her. Of course it can work, as long as you don't expect the relationship to make you happy. Right? (laughs) Of course the world can work. Life can work. Being a human being can work, as long as we don't expect experience to be the solid ground that we think we need. It's totally okay, I hope, to renovate your homes. We're doing a little renovation now at our house. As long as we don't expect the renovation to make us happy. By all means, go on a Buddhist retreat. Buy Buddhist books. There's still a couple copies that are still in the city. (laughs) Make your check to Angela, who brought them here, right? But we don't expect reading, even a really powerful transforming book, we don't expect it to make us happy because that's not what the Buddha understood under the Bodhi tree. He didn't become somebody who was made happy. Right? His mind had the understanding that there's nobody here who has a problem with change, with the absence of ground that delivers happiness that there's no problem with the world being the way it is. And how is the world? It's imperfect. It's unjust. There's a lot of unnecessary suffering, tremendous suffering. But our full participation, our liberated, full manifestation of love and wisdom doesn't depend on the world being perfect. So the freedom to be a human being doesn't depend on the world. It could be like really bad that not only are are there the injustices that there are in the world, but an asteroid's coming. And Lyme's disease has really spread. Some of you may be caught. There was an article in the New York Times a couple of days ago about mosquitoes. Anybody see that? It's an amazing article. I think it said 700 million people, they through the course of human history, I don't know, like recorded human history, so maybe the last 10,000 years, but 700 million people, they estimate, have been killed by mosquito-borne disease. And they consider, the scientists in the article consider mosquitoes the top predator. Right? And it's basically humans versus mosquitoes, and the odds are on the mosquitoes <laughs> winning. It's fascinating to read these things because it kind of... So this is like the very nature of the world that we live in. And it's a little bit arrogant to kind of have the self-righteous, arrogant self-righteous, it shouldn't be this way. I mean, on some level, the suffering should break our hearts. So I'm not saying that our heart shouldn't be moved by the injustice, by the suffering. But that movement, that brokenness, you could even say, could be, why couldn't it be part of that liberated movement of love? Why do I have to get involved in an oh, poor me? Because it doesn't help me respond to injustice or to climate change or to mosquitoes or whatever else that we're moved to kind of do what we can do in in our world. So I want to, before opening it up for discussion, I wanted to use a couple uh, nature... Um, teachings that both the Buddha and other um, monks and Dharma teachers have used. This is from one of the suttas. Over and over the seeds all get planted. 
Over and over the rain god sprinkles rain. Over and over the farmer farms the field. Over and over the food grows in the realm. Over and over beggars do their begging. Over and over the givers give out gifts. Over and over the giver who has given, over and over goes to a better place. Over and over one tries and one struggles. Over and over the fool, the unwise one, goes to the womb, gets reborn again. Over and over one is born and one dies. Over and over one bears, uh, over and over they bear them to their grave, to their graves. But one whose wisdom is wide as the earth is not born over and over. For they have gained the path of not becoming over and over. Always looking for the ground in the way that habit has conditioned the mind to look for ground, to look for safety. Looking for safety in objects of experience that aren't permanent. Right? We look for safety in relationships, but how many times have we learned that relationships can't provide permanent safety? That wealth and affluence and a safe living situation doesn't provide permanent safety. What has provided enough safety that the heart is free from seeking safety, seeking comfort. Anybody there? No. But the thing is, we're so busy in the distractedness of seeking safety where there's no safety that we don't realize clearly enough that it's not delivering. So we then renovate the house, not because it's a good thing to do and some, you know, and that it will be good for those who use the house down the road. But because we, you know, we're fallen for the promise that's never kept, that if only I get this done, then I'm going to feel safe. It will be a permanent shift where I'll have something I can count on. So I mentioned, I think, earlier in one of the sessions how we should really shift from thinking in terms of nouns to thinking in terms of, are they gerunds? You know, the words, the verbs that have ing in them. Like in one of the later texts, the Vasudhimaga, the Path of Purification, Buddhaghosa says, suffering is, but no sufferer can be found. Doing is but no doer can be found. Life is, right? Living is, experiencing is, clearly. It makes sense to use that word, that experiencing is happening. But no experiencer can be found. So remember we're, that we're using impermanence as a skillful means to liberate the heart. Because the mind has this force, this very powerful force of habit to seek safety where there's no safety to be found. And each time that that truth delivers no safety to be found, our response is always the same. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to try better. Or I give up. But either one of those, I'm going to try harder or I give up, It's still the same thing. Like giving up is the answer for me. That I can get some kind of ground in giving up. Well, at least I'm not going to be a fool trying to get solid ground that's only betrayed me. So I'm just going to be one of those people who give up. But that's our own, another self-centered attempt to have solid ground. Not being the fool that's going to you know, get involved in the rat race. That's its own false move. 
And how do we know? It's not like somebody's judging us. We'll just know if we pay attention. So what the Buddha discovered is really hard to discover. It's the happiness of letting go or the joy of renunciation. Not just renouncing, you know, fancy stuff. It's renouncing feeding on experience. It's a full, wholehearted participation in life without expecting to be fed in any way by our participation. And this was explored in the Bhagavad Gita. I know some of you probably have read it. It's a famous text in the yogic tradition. It's all about Arjuna, the main character, with his dialogue with Krishna, who sort of represents wisdom in the epic story. You know, and in their conversation, he's got a real setup where he has to fight this war, and a lot of people on the other side are his like his main teacher is there and a lot of his relatives. It's just like this perfect setup. Like, I do not want to live up to my responsibilities. You know, my, the responsibilities that my lo- cultural location has placed on me. And his, you know, from his point of view, his place felt just. You know, it felt appropriate to sort of do, but it just, didn't make sense. And one of the, the basic message from Krishna, from wisdom in this story is that all we have rights to is our full and beautiful participation. That's all we get in our lives. And it will look different for each of us. Like what a wholehearted showing up looks like will be different. And, and in a way, this is from Pema Children, I love this. Not holding back is what she considers to be our refuge. Right? We're taking refuge and not holding back. Isn't that great? Because what is the wisdom or understanding that allows us to not hold back? Well, it's not any fixed agenda. Because with fixed agendas, we're always going to be holding back because we're comparing our engagement in terms of our fixed idea of what, if we're kind of in a more self-centered point of view, what brings me comfort, what gives me status. But even if we're in a really generous point of view, but still from a self-centered point of view, you know, it's still off. It's only when the participation is the end itself. We understand that how it all plays out isn't in my control. That we're willing, willingly participating in this enormous dance of causes and conditions. So we don't know how it's going to play out because we have enough wisdom to know that there's way too much in motion. Maybe sometimes we have a little intuition about how it might play out. But mostly we have a lot of humility. Who knows how this is going to play out? It will be interesting, <coughs> excuse me, to see how this plays out. So one more thing here. Immeasurable, I think I read this earlier in the course. Immeasurable is this onflow. The earliest point cannot be known as beings obscured by ignorance and tied to craving, keep running on, keep flowing on. For a very long time indeed have you all encountered suffering, encountered confusion, encountered misery, and swelled the charnel grounds. It has surely been long enough to become disenchanted, long enough to become disengaged, long enough to become free from all formations, fixed views, all becomings. Formations are so impermanent Formations are so unstable. Formations are so disappointing. The Buddha then uttered this verse. How impermanent formations are. Their nature is to come and go. Having arisen, they vanish. Happiness comes from calming them. Right. So we're really teasing out that self-centered view. And then 
our personality, you could say, our life force, the chi that moves through our body and mind, then it becomes the business of nature. It's like who we are when the motive force of greed and aversion have been uprooted. And it would be really interesting to see Mark, Shelley, or Julia, or Dave, or whoever, you know, to see these lives that we know animated and the animation unrestricted, right? not weighed down by the stiffness, the friction of greed and aversion. Wouldn't it be? Because we kind of sense that in times, you know, we do see in moments in our good friends when their heart's relatively pure and they're doing the dance of their life with a mind that doesn't have in those moments much greed and aversion. And it's really a beautiful thing. That's like what we mean by sangha. You know, we could say, whoa, did you see that person? They were, they were doing the sangha dance, you know, and just how they moved, what they said, what they didn't say. Of course, we never know completely from the outside view, but, you know, we can sense and maybe hopefully sense more clearly in our own activities how sometimes our activity, our expression is really beautiful. We're in the flow, absence, greed, and aversion. The unknowingness, the changingness, the unsatisfying, like not going to get anything, the participation is, in a sense, the fruit, the free free um, participation the unrestricted participation, that is the fruit, right? That's the awakening or the liberation, not what one gets. It's not like somebody gets awakened. It's the dropping away of that fixed idea and what's left is awakened activity, not somebody who's awakened. And I mentioned recently, and I'll end here and open it up for discussion, but I came across um, Ajahn Tanisaro was uh, talking about one of his teachers. Some of you know him. He's a well-known Buddhist scholar and uh, a wonderful translator as well. Anyway, he um, was talking about one of his teachers who said something like, this is a rough paraphrase, when the heart opens to the deeper freedom, the happiness of the deeper freedom of letting go of non-attachment, it doesn't really occur to that person that this freedom doesn't refer back to anybody, doesn't refer back to me, that it isn't my freedom. But it doesn't, doesn't matter, it doesn't come up. And that's, that's that shift where we, we think awakening is something I'm going to get. But instead... We just follow the path with integrity because as we check it out, it just makes sense. So we keep checking it out, and it keeps making sense. And eventually, we're okay not understanding where it goes because it's made so much sense each step along the way. I mean, even intellectually, it just makes so much sense to trust a path that's all about being intimate with the way it is. I mean, how could we argue? Because that's the kind of world that makes sense to me. Like if I'm going to be a person with a body and a mind, why would I trust a strategy that's all about not really being here when I'm here? You know, being distracted or being disconnected. It just doesn't make sense on all levels. So we just keep following it and it makes sense. And one of the ways, one of the teachings more than almost any other teaching, as I've been saying these weeks, and I'm sure Wynn and Shelley have been saying as well, is the Buddha talked about using impermanence, the reality of impermanence as a teacher. So I thought for the open discussion time, the 15 minutes or so we have left, is just for folks, some folks to share about some of the fruits that have come your way in contemplating keeping impermanence in mind as a teacher. What have you noticed? Not that you may, you may not have perfect clarity, but... What do you sense is the positive effect from keeping impermanence in mind? 
And of course, any questions that come to mind too, okay, to bring up. Anybody want to start us off? What benefits, what understandings, what letting goes have come your way through this contemplation over the years and during the course? So I'm not sure this is uh, what you mean, but um, a couple of weeks ago you were talking about uh, each moment when it's gone, it's gone. And the next moment isn't here yet, and so on. And and so that really kind of stuck with me. It did stick with me. And I kind of felt like I was on this knife edge of a moment. And it was like there were these set of doors that under my feet that kind of went like that. Of course, I didn't go anywhere. Um, but it was um, unsettling isn't quite the right word, but it was I'd never experienced anything like it. I don't really have the words for it. It wasn't really weightless or but this sort of being on this in this moment with no past and no future at that moment. Um, It just, maybe it felt liberating, I don't know if that's the right word, Mm. but it certainly felt, I don't know, I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And whatever that was that the mind was opening to, that's here and now. Because the mind didn't open to something new it opened to something that's always been here, always true. Experiences, experience doesn't change because we're paying attention. The heart's just being forced to have a, a relationship with integrity as opposed to a relationship with distraction. So, so it does, it can rock our world. I'm not saying that it waking up or paying attention to our experience doesn't rock our world. I think it does but it can be deeply trusted because it's always been true. So it's not like we can get in a dangerous place because it's just this, life. We're just, we're just sort of maturing, like we've been a, a child in our egg, you know? And, and because we've encountered these teachings, you know, and we notice we've got the little, I guess, Chicks have this little hard beak, you know, and realize that, oh, well, we can do something here. You know, we can kind of check out, there's a crust here. Let's, let's knock it around. Let's see what happens. And this is the teachings, the Dhamma, you know. We're kind of playing with it and see what happens. And we're really trusting, like, okay, so. And then the other thing I want to say about what you said, too, is the ideas of impermanence are also very provocative, so it's really important, it's, and it's okay to play with the ideas of impermanence, but that's why it's really nice to work with the body, excuse me, because to really ground the ideas with the movement of the breath, or the movement of sound, or the movement of sensation, to really kind of something very ordinary, or just the, like the visual field is also alive with change so that we're really um, integrating it into just sort of lived experience. Yeah, well, it was sort of a, as I said, it was a bodily experience. I think I first start with the intellectual notion, but when somehow that moved me someplace else. Yeah. And maybe it was this just feeling of being in the now that I'm not really used to. <laughs> yeah, because the, <laughs> By now, any means. the now doesn't have ground. The present moment doesn't have ground. It isn't a concept. It's only concepts that create the appearance of solidity. It's only our concepts and the mind identifying with concept that creates the appearance of solidity or permanence. Yeah, thanks, John. Yeah, Leah, please. I really appreciate... Um, 
the idea of showing up in the moment. And I was just scanning my life and, and who really um, is around me that shows up in, in the moment where, like you said, there's just a flavor to it. And it's my kids and the other kids that I'm with. And they just show up in the moment. It's like such magic. I get to see that. I get to witness it and be there with it. Um, and then what happens? <laughs> well, we're busy training them to be afraid. <laughs> and if that doesn't break our hearts. Yeah, thanks, Leah. Yeah, so yeah, I've, I've sort of been noticing over the course of my career, and I think this is because I'm a very independent person, is that there's always like just at least one person that just is like pushing my buttons. And it's like there's almost these, almost this like primal, like territorial wars going on. And as a function of time, I've learned to be an adult and like not, re- not react to it, right? Outwardly. And it's just like recently occurred to me, it's like I was still, I've still been like reacting to the emotion right and feeding the emotion and feeling so justified in it like like this sort of like us versus them type deal and like this just happened today it just something came up something so minute but it was a button pusher and like it was like wow i just automatically just was like okay well instead of like feeding this emotion i can be with the emotion and not actually feed it, but but also not push it away, feel it, right? And it was like, it just, <laughs> 10 minutes maybe, it was gone, right? It was totally changed. It totally changed, and it was like, wow. It was when just, you're, yeah, it was so cool. Yeah, and when you were in it, though. <laughs> 31 years of probably doing this, right? <laughs> Well, some of us were older and doing it. <laughs> well, I'm not. I'm not pretending that I'm like totally done doing it. But. Yeah. <laughs> but but what's so interesting is when we're in the vortex of the drama, it's like there's something really sweet about the identity, the kind of unification around a sense of self, is a kind of ephemeral but real satisfaction, and. It's scary to imagine not having it, which is why we unconsciously keep feeding the rage or whatever the particular emotion is. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Did somebody back? John? Bob. Bob, sorry. (laughs) John has a brother, Bob, and it forever got stuck in my mind someday. (laughs) And a son, John. That complicates it, too. Um, Two very specific examples. Um, Yesterday, I hurt my back. Um, um, not a lot, but I've had some periods in my life where I've hurt my back and it's been just horrible for a while. Um, and the first thing that went through my mind was, oh, good grief, you know, I got to stop running, I better go get a massage, you know, I mean, and my life is ruined. Um, um, and then I kind of thought impermanence, and, and that was nice. And another one, I hope this doesn't embarrass you, but but Mary and I were just like this yesterday, and maybe even the day before, um, and not quite sure how or why. But last night when we were going to bed, I can't remember who said it, but one of us looked at the other and said, impermanence. Um, I notice that sometimes that upsets me that I'm not upset anymore. (laughs) Well, absolutely, I've experienced that. At that moment, it was was an incredible kind of liberating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. ah. Yeah. Thanks, Bob. Sorry about that problem with the name. For what it's worth... (laughs) Bob is the one who said impermanence, oh, and I was still really feeding anger, and I was like, oh, yeah, sure, pull that one out, <laughs> right when we're falling asleep. You probably don't even mean it, but anyway, it, it was good. I mean, after a while, my anger dropped away. <laughs> it's so good to come with your partner. We have time for one last. Tim, you want to finish us up? You pass it back. Good evening. Um, I said, good evening. (laughs) 
I I have a I have a hard time seeing impermanence because I'm kind of like I discovered I'm kind of like black and white thinker and impermanence you can't really see it it's kind of you kind of see it indirectly but what I can see directly is like what substitutes as permanence which is concepts and I think normally the habit is to like yeah you you have a concept and it's not doing its job anymore so you gotta like come up with a new concept that's like bigger and better and like i see that happening more and more and seeing like not just in my mind but seeing in other people's mind too and like needing a rationale for everything and needing to be logical about everything and thinking that that's gonna like solve their problems and uh that that actually has hurt a lot to see that and uh so um that's that's just what I noticed. Yeah, it's Thank that, you. S- that subtle uh, patching up our symbolic universe, the idea of me, my idea of you, my ideas of the world, constantly having to patch it up. The restlessness of that is a nice definition of dukkha, the more subtle kind of dukkha. Because when we're dependent, when the mind is dependent on the stories that it tells, then the mind is always then restlessly patching them up, like you were describing, Tim. And only when there's enough space and interest in the mind, steadiness and interest in the mind, then we begin to detect that even when things are going pretty well, the mind is still restlessly becoming the person who's doing really well. The identity takes work, and it's stressful, but it's subtle. That's a subtle expression of dukkha that you were talking about. So I sent out an email today. Um, there's a, I was thinking of maybe reading some of it, but there's a really nice description of uh, someone, a, a Buddhist monk from uh, Thailand, taking a walk in the woods and just seeing impermanence. So I recommend that you read that. We have uh, Wynn's talk was in that email from week two. She regave it, and we got it recorded. So now that's um, available. And then also Venerable Analio's meditation from the Hisatipatthana sequence where he's doing the contemplation of death, but in a very simple way with the breath. And you might really like it as we move into the last two weeks of the course and we'll be looking more at using death contemplation as a teacher. It's a very simple way because it can be complicated in the early Buddhist teachings, but just each breath in and out, just contemplating, could be my last, but definitely one breath closer to my last. So you just bring that reflection in with each breath in and out. But you can listen to his instructions. It's really nice to do that. And I'll be gone next week. Shelley will be teaching again, but I'll be here for week eight and two weeks. And the last thing... uh, all of you probably know, almost all of you have been around for a while, but the Common Ground operates in this beautiful circle of giving and receiving. Everything here, the building, our retreat property in western Wisconsin, our wonderful office staff and leadership, Gabe, who's our office manager, and Gail Iverson, our bookkeeper, and Shelley and myself, our Dharma staff Dharma teachers, and administrators, all of this happens because people show up. And so much of the work happens because of volunteers. So our work here, you know, with this contemplation is how can we receive the community, these ancient teachings, this beautiful building, these programs, how can we receive it as a free gift, no strings attached, and learn to let it be a cause for happiness in our hearts. And then any way that makes sense, given your situation, time, money, whatever makes you happy, find a way to give in a way that makes you happy. Even if it's giving your love and your gratitude, there's always one way or another to give, to support what goes on here. And it just needs to be what makes you happy. So you might need to experiment to really see what really makes feels right You know, the aftertaste really, oh yeah, that felt good. 
As the Buddha says, it makes us happy contemplating our giving, doing the giving, and thinking about our giving afterward. It makes us feel happy. But it takes some time to figure out in each of our situations in life, what is that circle of receiving and giving? How to really make it healthy and appropriate. Have a good couple of weeks, everyone. See you down the road. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.